2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting to read at verse 3, a passage of scripture that will be familiar to many of you. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That fourth verse is a comparison between carnal weapons and spiritual weapons. And if our weapons are mighty, then by default in the comparison, the carnal weapons are weak. And verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. <clears throat> Last Sunday morning, I began to preach about things that we can measure and things that we cannot and on Wednesday night, if you were here, the same theme was our platform and taught about separation and consecration, the principles thereof. And uh, continuing in that sort of vein loosely this morning, we understand that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is given to us as an agent of change. When we respond to and obey the gospel, and really the only genuine ex response to the gospel is obedience. When we obey the gospel, there's, there's change that takes place. It changes our status with God. We become His children. We go from being not His children to becoming His children. It changes the status of our eternal destiny. We become destined for heaven instead of hell. And uh, people don't like nowadays to talk about hell much, but hell is just as real as heaven. It's a lot less attractive, but it's just as real. <clears throat> the gospel changes the status of our lives here while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. It, it, we, we, we take on different values. We take on different desires. We begin to learn different thinking, speaking, acting. All of these things are changed and transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some instantly, some in an ongoing fashion. That's how it works. And we, we turn away from the sinful lives that we used to live, but we also, over time, have our minds changed. That's not talking about brainwashing. The Bible describes it as the renewing of our minds. We have our minds changed so that we turn away from the sinful thinking that produced the sinful lives we had. Everything begins in our minds. Our ideas, our actions all begin there. And so if our if our thought patterns and processes and influences are slanted in a certain direction, that's the way that we will live. And so when we were in sin and it was the, the driving influence on the way we thought, it was also the driving influence on the outcome of those thoughts and the way that we lived. But the Lord wants to change that. And when we're born again, when we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we learn to reconsider what it is that we feed into our minds and into our hearts. And we taught on Wednesday night, we become separated unto God. We belong to Him. We become dedicated to Him, committed to Him. We become His children. He becomes our Heavenly Father, not just in creation, but also in relationship. And we learn to walk with Him. And as you grow in grace as a Christian, there are several things that are happening. A couple of those are that we grow in our understanding of who God is, and draw nearer to Him. We're also removing continually influences from our past 
that contributed to us being in sin. Again, our thinking patterns, our habits, and our practices. And when the Lord brought the Israelites in the Old Testament into the promised land, physically, they went through a relocation. Uh, you could, if you want to go back far enough to Abraham, you can. But in the, in the more short term, where they were in bondage in Egypt, which we know is a type of sin, they came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, which was a type of baptism. And then because of some bad choices they made, they got stuck in the wilderness for longer than was the original plan. Eventually, they came to Canaan or to the promised land, and so they physically went through a relocation. When we are born again, we spiritually go through a relocation. We move from being in darkness to being in light. We don't necessarily change postcodes or addresses, but there is a relocation of our citizenship. We move from being a part of one kingdom to being a part of another. And when Israel came into Canaan, there had already been people living there. It wasn't just a completely untouched landscape. They didn't just come into a place where nothing had been done. But when they came into the promised land, there was land that was tilled. There were fields that were already being used. There were houses and cities and different things. There was, today we'd probably call it infrastructure. They had some things in place. They didn't have to start from scratch. But along with those things that were already there, there was the evidence of the worship of false gods. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, let's, let's read it together. Let's turn in our Bibles. Good for us to turn in our Bibles. I'm a little old school, I have to say. I prefer a, a real Bible in my hand to an electronic one. I like the rustle of pages rather than the glow on your face. Uh, the Word of God is the Word of God. But, you know, sometimes I look out and somebody's looking up something on their phone. I'm not sure if they're actually looking at Scripture or looking at Facebook. You can't tell from up here. So I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if I check with you afterwards, that's why. But Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 1 says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place." You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. And the Lord was saying, we're not going to practice those things when we serve God. But, in verse 5, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither or there shall you come. Verse 5 is prophetic because it's speaking about the temple which is yet to come, obviously. That's just getting into the land. They hadn't set things up yet. But it was talking about that time when the Lord said, I'm going to choose a place to put my name and my habitation. And in a similar vein, in Numbers 33 and 52, it says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their pictures. That didn't mean their family photo albums. They didn't have any of those back then. It's talking about graven images and idols. 
destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. And it's high places that I really want to talk about this morning in this underneath that arch of the things we can measure and things we can't. The idea of worship taking place on elevated ground seems to be common in the ancient world. Uh, They would often go to hills or even to mountains and some commentators suggest that when Abraham built his altars that they were in elevated locations. They seem to have this thing about being in a high place to worship and uh, we've already observed from what we read in I think it was Deuteronomy that the Canaanites worshipped idols on the high mountains, on the hills and under every green tree. In other words they had places set up to worship false gods everywhere you looked. And it seems that even the Israelites used high places when they built altars to worship God. When you read the story in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, they're up on Mount Carmel. They're not in a valley. They're up on the mountain. And it says that Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. He, he built something or repaired something that it would seem was already there. And so there had been some worship and some sacrifice that had taken place in a high place. And while it seems as though the Lord tolerated, accepted this practice, at least for a time, it wasn't what the Lord had originally instructed them to do. In Leviticus chapter 17, it's a part of the law. I'll read a couple of portions here. You can get these off me afterwards if you like to. But in Leviticus 17, it says, What man soever there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that killeth it out of the camp, And bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood shall be imputed unto that man. He hath shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, even that they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest, and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. In Deuteronomy, it also says this in chapter 12, but when you go over Jordan, or in other words, they give, Moses was giving instruction for when they would enter the promised land, you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, wherever you happen to feel like it. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do as I command thee. So even though it seems that there had been some allowance, we might say, some acceptance of of sacrifice being offered in different places, the Lord had a desire that there would be a point of focus for worship. So when when that time comes and that, that temple is set up, and even the tabernacle before that, They were to bring 
that was to be the place where they brought their sacrifice and they brought their worship. It wasn't just to be wherever they happened to feel like. And the failure, the failure to remove the practice of offering things in high places when you study the Old Testament became an ongoing problem for the Israelites for generations. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go along. But eventually, as time went by, the temple would be built by Solomon. We know there came a time when, when Solomon built that temple. But even leading up to that time, in 1 Kings chapter 3, let's turn there and get you to read some scripture. 1 Kings chapter 3. And verse 1, it says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't a great thing. It was a political move. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem around about. And then it says, Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those dates. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. The use of the word only here in the King James is not a positive thing. It's a statement that this was going on, however, they were still doing this. It says, Solomon walked in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. It was, it was like a footnote that said, he was getting most of it right, but there was still a bit of this going on that wasn't exactly how it was supposed to be. And when you spend time reading through the history of Israel after Solomon, you'll see that every time a king ascended to the throne, it spoke of that king in terms of his spiritual direction. Did he follow the Lord as David did, or did he follow idols? If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that. It'll say, and so-and-so was born, and he became the king of uh, Israel or Judah in, in such and such a time, and he walked with the Lord God as his father David, or it'll say, and he did not walk with the Lord his God, but worshipped Baal or Molech or one of the other idols from the people around about them. And that, that's kind of, there's this, in each transition from king to king, there's either good king, bad, I think there was more bad than good, but what identifies them is, did they walk in the ways of the Lord or did they serve the false gods of the people around about them? And although, although there were some high places that were established unto the Lord, there were others that were established unto idols. And when a king led the people into idol worship, those high places very easily became places of worship for Baal and Molech and other false gods, again, from the nations they dwelt amongst. Some of that idol worship was, was horrendous. If you look into some of the practices, particularly with Molech, they say that they would heat that, that metal statue, that idol up, till it was glowing red, and they would offer their children as live human sacrifices to a god that could neither hear their prayers nor answer them. And so you can see why the Lord was so adamant that they were to get rid of those things out of their nation. But even when we read that a certain king began to reign and he walked in the ways of the Lord as David, his father, before him, unfortunately, many times that statement is followed by words along the lines of, but the high places were not taken away. So-and-so became the king, 
walked in the ways of David, his father, and according to his statutes, but the high places were not taken away. Some commentators suggest that because the people had become so familiar with that practice that trying to eradicate it throughout the land was too much of a challenge for the kings. But you see that statement repeated again and again. So-and-so becomes the king. He's doing the right thing. However, the high places were not taken away. There's only two kings that I'm aware of, Hezekiah and Josiah, I believe they were, that are recorded as not only walking in the ways of the Lord, but also taking away the high places as they led their people into spiritual reformation. So the question is, why were the high places such a problem? What's the big deal? As long as they were present, as long as there were these places scattered throughout the land, when a time of struggle came, when a time of temptation came or a wicked king sat on the throne, it made it very easy to transition back into idol worship when everything was set up and ready to go. They didn't have to start from scratch, but they had these places that were prefabricated, if you like, that were ready to go. And so when the nation took a downward turn and began to spiral into wickedness, here we have ready-made idol worship. Just add worshipers. And those places, in a lot of ways, became a crutch to Israel's weaknesses. As a nation, when they struggled and they fumbled and messed things up, those places not only were a crutch, but they facilitated or they enabled the ease of transition into idol worship. And because the temple was supposed to be the focus of their worship to God, there was a reason for that. Having those high places scattered across the countryside actually endangered the unity of the nation. Because if they served one God in one house of worship, everybody was on the same page when it came to time for church. But when there were other places scattered around the place and it was a little bit too far or a little bit too cold or a little bit too whatever, they didn't really enjoy it the last time they went, there was an easier option. And in fact, if you look at the history, when Israel and Judah split into being two divided kingdoms, where people would worship became a part of the problem. And they set up other options so people wouldn't go to Jerusalem. You and I do not physically relocate into a land when we're born again that was inhabited by pagan idol worshippers. The Lord doesn't miraculously teleport us into some country where everything's ready to go and we just move in we don't go to the promised land like they did and see all these these idols and the worship that took place because we were already the pagan idol worshipers when we were born again that was us that was you and me we might not worship baal or molech but we worshiped any other kind of sin and wickedness and so we didn't have to move in to being pagans we brought that with us and we don't tear down other people's high places. We brought our own with those as well. We brought them with us when we came into the kingdom of God. And we don't come to a temple that's built on a hill in Jerusalem like they did to worship God. But we come to a hill just outside the city, which has a cross on it where Jesus hung for our sins. That is the focal point of our worship. That's where we are to come. That's where everything begins. That's where any approach, any sacrifice, any offering, any commitment must begin at the cross. 
or it's not accepted in the sight of the Lord. And at the cross and through obedience to the gospel, we know that the power of sin is broken. The power that, that bound us and held us is destroyed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've repented of your sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and filled with the Holy Ghost, or to put that together, you've been born again, that power no longer has a stronghold in your life. You have been given the power to live a victorious life. Amen. And while we may never have had a nice fancy grove of trees in our backyard with an altar set up or a statue of a golden calf, all of us have got high places that used to have a hold on us. All of us have things that we, we looked to, that we leaned upon, that we ran to when we were weak and tempted and struggling. Some of them are obvious, some not so obvious. Some of us can remember a time when we had physical addictions, when there were maybe substances, there were activities, there were different things that we were involved in that had a hold on us. The lusts of our flesh were things that bind us so very easily, and they become the high places in our lives. Other things are not so visible, anxieties, fears, depression, the things that can grip us inside in our heart and make our heart rate spike, and others are not even aware of it, but there is things that bind us. And so in that moment, we look for whatever it is that brings release. We run to a high place. Some people, it's relationships. You know, God created relationships. He looked at Adam, who was perfect, and said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And he made Eve to be his companion. God is, the idea of healthy human relationships is a God thing. The idea of destructive human relationships is not a God thing. And there are some people that go from relationship to relationship because it is their crutch for their own inferiorities, for their own insecurities, for their own need to feel valued. And those things are effectively temples or high places in their lives. They can't survive without them. Some other things are seemingly not so harmful. It could be our career. It could be finances. The room always gets quiet when you talk about money. But some people trust in their material abilities to provide for themselves rather than the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I've got to have everything in controlled and sorted out in a 10-year plan, under 20-year plan. And there's nothing wrong with all that. Some of that's part of being a good steward. But under all of that is the he shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. Amen. Material goals, trusting in ourselves and not in God. And there, we all, if we're all honest, we could think back to the time before we were born again and maybe write a list of some of those things that we recognized. And the, perhaps the sobering part is there's probably things that should be on the list that we don't even recognize. That things that when life was hard or we couldn't cope, that they would be our places we would run the high places. And some of us some of us struggle to be victorious in our walk with God because we still have some high places that aren't torn down. Because in the moment of pressure we go the easy option rather than back to Calvary. We go to that place of comfort and refuge rather than running to the one that really is our refuge and our strength. Amen. And if we're honest, and I'm not wanting to be unkind this morning, we become afraid to let those things go because they're a crutch for our weaknesses. Just as Israel had weaknesses, every one of us has weaknesses. 
I read something that Brother Anthony Mangan said recently that struck a chord with me. He said, one of the reasons that people stay in bondage, even though they are praying to God, is that they are not functioning in agreement with the covenant they made with God. I'll say that again because it's a mouthful. One of the reasons people stay in bondage, even though they are praying to God, is that they are not functioning in agreement with the covenant they made with God. When you're born again, whether you realize it or not, you enter into a covenant relationship with God. That means that there are terms and conditions. You know, we, we sign terms and conditions all the time. You know, every time that you download something, you tick that box that says, yes, I've read the terms and conditions. But the truth is, no, you actually haven't. Because they deliberately make it so that you don't want to read them. There's normally like 80 pages of print in a size 4 font, and nobody has the time to read that. But any time you, you rent a car, any time you go stay in a hotel, you get on a plane, you, 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 when you sign that, you make that payment, you are agreeing to terms and conditions. And, you know, if we really took the time to read all of those, we'd probably think, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, when you rent a car and it says, you know, whether it's your fault or it's not your fault and you have an accident, you've got to pay for it. You think, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But we don't read the terms and conditions. When you enter into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, you belong to him. The Bible says that Moses spoke with him like a man speaks to his friend, that Abraham was considered the friend of God. And I understand there's a song that says, I am the friend of God. And that's okay to a point, but he's not your pal. He's your God. We have entered into a covenant where he is our king. And we worship him. And if you try to operate in that covenant against the terms of that covenant, you will struggle. You will not know victory. You will not know what it is to defeat sin because you're trying to operate outside of the terms of that covenant. When you read the book of Judges, there's a man that when we were kids in Sunday school, all the little boys wanted to be, and his name was Samson. Because when we were little boys, we didn't understand his weakness. We just thought he was strong. But Samson was in a covenant relationship with God. He was called into a vow. He was one of only, I think there's only three people in the scripture that had lifelong Nazarite vows. And so he was called into that and there were terms and conditions. He was not to ever cut his hair. He wasn't to drink any strong drink, to touch a dead body. He didn't have any fruit, any grapes, just in case they were on the edge and they were a little bit alcoholic. There were terms and conditions. He had to act different. He had to live different. And he had to look different. He was the only young man in his crew that had long hair. And people thought, this is a strange looking fella. But he was in a covenant that changed his appearance. I could preach about that for a while this morning, but I'm not going to. He was in a relationship with God that God said, I have a purpose for you. This is what I want you to be separated from. And as long as we're in that covenant, there is going to be an anointing that rests upon you that I'm going to use you to do things that cannot be done naturally and to be a deliverer to my people. 
And we know the stories of how a lion came out and roared against him and he just took his bare hands and ripped that thing apart like it was nothing. They locked him into the city one night and he got up in the middle of the night and took the gates of the city and the posts and the beam and carried them to the top of the hill and dropped them there. Now these were the gates of a city. This wasn't an ARC aluminium pool fence that he carried up the hill. These were the gates of the city. It was an incredible anointing and power that God gave him. Why? To defeat the enemy. If you are born again, you have an anointing upon your life that gives you power to defeat the enemy. But it hangs in the balance of you being in obedience and agreement with the covenant that you are in. Because Samson, as we got to understand when we got a little bit older, had a real problem. He had a problem with wanting to go out with the wrong kind of girls. And he's not alone in that. There have been many men throughout history that have had that problem. He had a problem. He knew he had a problem. He knew that it was dangerous. His parents tried to warn him. He said, I want to go marry this girl. She's from an idol-worshipping bunch, but she's the one I like. They said, isn't there one of our girls you could marry? God-fearing young lady? Nope, this is the one I want. You sort it out. And what would happen is that man who was in covenant with God, who operated under the incredible anointing of God, would go and perform a great victory and take the jawbone of an ass and kill a whole bunch of Philistines. But then when that was all said and done and the party was finished and everybody's rejoicing had quietened down, he would go back to the high place of his fleshly weakness and find himself in the arms of a strange woman and uncontrolled lust. God is merciful and God is gracious, but Samson kept going back. He had a high place in his life that he knew he should have got rid of. He knew it was there. He wasn't, I mean, you read about him, you think he's stupid, but he wasn't stupid. He'd been warned. God had no doubt warned him. His parents had tried to reason with him, but he did not get rid of that thing. And he was operating under the anointing in a covenant with the back door open. And sooner or later, because of his foolishness, he went to the high place one time too many. And we know that his hair was shaved, his anointing was taken, and his covenant was broken. The Philistines came, they took him, they bound him. After all those times of him thrashing them like they weren't even there, they took him as weak as any other prisoner. They put out his eyes. Brother Paul shared with me once that he read somewhere that they, they described it as if they were like mash and boiled eggs. If that's a bit gross, you can thank Brother Paul for that. But, but this man who was in covenant relationship with God and anointed and powerful. You might think, well, I'm never going to kill a thousand Philistines or tear a lion apart with my bare hands. You'd be arrested if you did that nowadays. But you have an anointing upon you to defeat a greater lion than Samson. See, the New Testament says that the enemy of our souls goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But when you're in covenant with God, there is an anointing that rests upon you that gives you victory 
over the enemy. And that's worth more than a thousand Philistines. Because that victory is the difference between going to heaven and going to hell. But you've got to operate in the terms of the covenant to preserve and keep that anointing. You can't keep a high place hidden away somewhere that nobody knows about that you think, well, that's just my little thing. That's not really a problem. Samson thought he was in control. The first time Delilah asked him, what's the secret? And he made up some story and he defeated the Philistines. And again, two or three or four times this happened. She tries to find out the secret. And eventually, you know, everybody is thinking, what is wrong with this guy? He's got rocks for brains. She's asked him the same question again and again, and he keeps giving. And eventually, he gives her the real answer. And that's exactly what happens is that the devil tries to get to us through that access point, through that high place. When we're somewhere, whether it's physically, spiritually, materially, emotionally, when we're somewhere that we should not be, when you've got something that God is saying, get it out. And it's still there. The devil comes. And we might, the first time we think, oh, I made it. You know, I told him some, I made up some story. I'm out of here. I won. And what happens is you become defeated by your overconfidence. Samson became cocky in his ability to handle the situation. And he figured, I can take care of this. And he lied to her again. And he lied to her again. But you see, Delilah had a PhD in nagging and wearing down. She was the best there was. And eventually he thought, this woman's like a dripping tap. And he told her, one time too many. Bless the Lord. What's your high place this morning? What is your high place this morning? What is my high place this morning? What are the things that I've been so blessed to be born again, but maybe there's just a little grove somewhere in the back of my life that nobody knows about. And I've got it under control, just like Samson had it under control. I want to be very clear about something this morning. Having weakness is unavoidable. Anybody who tells you that they don't have any weaknesses is deceived. We've all got weaknesses. You've got them. I've got them. If you're like me, you've got a whole nice set, not just one. Collect them all. We've all got weaknesses. Some we're aware of, some we're not so aware of. That's how it is. That's the human condition. We've all got them. If you be honest with yourself this morning, you shouldn't have to think too hard to start thinking about what your weaknesses are. If you do have to think too hard, you need to pray. So God, help me to be aware of who I am and where I am. Having weaknesses is unavoidable. Providing access to those weaknesses is a choice. I'll say that again. Having weaknesses is unavoidable. You've got them. You're human. You're flawed. You're not perfect. Your kids aren't perfect. Your spouse isn't perfect. Everybody you like isn't perfect. All of us are flawed with humanity. But choosing to let the enemy have a point of access, that's an act of will. 
when you know that there is something there, that you are leaving the door open. You're leaving the... I've seen it with people that God has delivered miraculously from addiction, from substance addiction. Go back to just having a small taste again and a small taste again and leaving that back door open. If God has delivered you from something, close that door and nail that thing shut. If there's something in your life that you know is a high place that you're wrestling with, bring in a bulldozer. Get in that thing and bulldoze that high place in Jesus' name. Because when you are weak, look at Israel's history. So-and-so became the king, walked in the ways of the Lord after David his father, but he did not get rid of the high places. And when a bad king followed, all of that just came back to life again. Israel would always battle with the temptation to worship false gods. You and I will always battle with the temptation to give into our flesh. That will be the case until Jesus comes. But not tearing down the high places made it so much easier to yield to that temptation. I'm going to use an example that I can use because it's not relevant to me. Imagine, imagine if I was an alcoholic. And if I was a chronic alcoholic and the Lord delivered me from that, do you think that it would be a good choice to, I don't know, maybe keep a six-pack in the fridge just in case? None of us would. We'd all think that's crazy. And yet there are other areas where we justify ourselves. Some things like that, oh, that's obvious. I remember Brother Gavin's and my former pastor, when he was first came to church and he decided he was going to live for God and everything was going great. And he said, he was only, I think, maybe a week or so in, in church, so be kind to him. But he had a really bad day and something went wrong. His car broke down. So what did he do? Went and bought a pack of cigarettes and a six-pack and went home and got drunk. That was his response. But he was just a brand-new saint. He didn't know any better. But we've got to be careful, the things that we keep. Because if they're not there, you can't use them. We read this scripture the other night. Paul said to the Corinthians, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. There, there is, if we're going to serve the Lord, separation has got to be a part of how we live. Temptation will come. That's guaranteed. Jesus said, You shall have tribulation. He didn't say, If you're bad, you'll get it. He just said, You're going to have it. But what we do with it, See, there is, let's stand together this morning. Cass, if I could have you at the piano, please. There are several times throughout history when you, when you look it up where there were people, possibly the most famous is Cortez, the explorer, conqueror. I don't want to get into the political correctness of all of that, but when, by traveling across the globe on, on old ships, he came to the place where he was going to lead the, the, the invasion really is probably the, the word nowadays and they, they burnt the ships they didn't just leave them down at the beach tied to a tree history records that in a few different occasions they burnt their ships they were making a statement we either conquer or die trying because as long as the ships were there when it got hard and the battle was turning against them, all you have to do is loosen the rope, 
and sail back out to sea again. Bless the Lord. I don't know who the Lord is speaking to. I don't know what he's speaking to you about. But I do believe I've heard from the Lord this morning. Somebody needs to burn some ships. Somebody needs to take a high place and say, Lord, I've kept it and it's just been a noose around my neck. Tear it down. Every eye is closed, every head bowed. Let's just allow the Spirit of the Lord to move on us this morning. You will have temptation. You will have weaknesses. But you are anointed in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. He has given us power. He's given us authority to live a victorious and a holy life. But we've got to give it all to Him. When you come to the cross, it's give it all or nothing at all. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let's just lift our voices and begin to talk to the Lord this morning. God, you know the things. Each one of us is different, Lord. 